0: May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia, and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Welcome back to the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am also author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. I am a pediatrician, and internal medicine doctor, as well as Diplomat of the Boards of Clinical Lipidology and Lifestyle Medicine. The goal of the podcast is to inform, inspire, and equip those who are living with fibromyalgia, their loved ones who don't really have a understanding of what this is all about, but want to help, and for doctors who just have not had much training in fibromyalgia and related problems. Last week, we heard the first part of the interview with Dr. Bruce Campbell. He is a newly retired ENT doctor who has been working in the field of narrative medicine. Last week we heard about the bidirectional positive impact that those who were living with chronic pain conditions at a Veterans Association hospital had when medical students were able to take their story and put it into a narrative form. This also had a positive impact on the medical students and doctors who took their history. We will get a chance to learn more about this field and also about looking at the personal aspect of medicine that Patients are real people deserving of real answers and real solutions. We will pick up where we left off with the conversation from last week. But before we get to that, a quick disclaimer as always this podcast is for informational purposes only. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your own individual doctor. And now on to this week's episode. I share about how. Patients are real people with real backgrounds. It made them have that this isn't just a tongue cancer that we're doing at 2 p.m. today that's going to take two hours to complete, and we're going to maybe do a lymph node dissection and have radiation, etc. I'm just curious, in that light, when you were talking about patients, did you add some pertinent color to that's Bob Johnson? He's a grandpa and his wife is Barb and they have three kids. He's a former such and such. And he loves to do this. And he's, re- did you ever add that in your?
1: I love doing that kind of thing because you know, I would say, see a patient and we talk about what's going on. They say, we're getting ready. We've been planning this trip to the Caribbean for years. and We're finally getting to go. And then I'd see them a year later. And I, the first question is, well, how was your trip to the Caribbean? And they're just absolutely blown away that I would remember. Because I wrote it, <laughs> I put it right here in your notes. So I would remember next time when I saw you, because that was how I did my progress notes. They often had little little things like that, something built in. And yeah, certainly. I have a friend who was a hospice physician for years, and he said he spent more time gathering the social history than he spent gathering the medical history. He wanted to know where people grew up, what kind of work they had, who their family was, their habits, and other kinds of things. Because he said, as a hospice physician, that's where you make connections, because their whole job is to help people feel better no matter what. And he says maybe he didn't do that so much when he was an intensivist. You didn't care quite as much. But once you moved into the hospice work, that was the focus of his care. and That's where he started and that's what he focused on was the social history. So I love that. And I tried to do that when I could. You've you got seven and a half minutes to see patients and sometimes that can be a problem. But it's amazing how much you can learn if you just mostly pay attention and ask one or two good questions. And like I say, I always made a little bit of a note about it so that I'd know how to ask about it and start the next time
0: getting to know somebody's background in social history in one of the narrative medicine books, uh, I forget the title, written in the 1980s, talked about s- sometimes characterizing a patient. And I think a lot of times in the world of chronic pain, we might say, oh, that's a hypochondriac, uh, such and mm-hmm. such. That's a non-compliant patient. Right. And it, one of the stories they shared was that there was a lot of social obstacles that were going on, that if you would know that, you would have some empathy and compassion. And I always thought, I and I started in med school in 1992, and before that, I heard of things. My mom was a nurse, and you hear about medicine, and you hear the word hypochondria, and I go, I don't know if I buy into that. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's a real thing. But I always thought there has to be some backstory, something we don't understand. And I think in that world of noncompliance, what are those things that are getting in the way? If you don't take time to understand that, you might quickly say, oh, he had tongue surgery. He's non-compliant. He's still smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah. And suddenly you're judging them and we won't have much empathy for him. What is the backstory? What are the other coexisting conditions in the bio, psychosocial, spiritual? Yeah,
1: we have looking at things. Yeah, Arthur Kleinman. Yeah, that's uh, the one, Arthur Kleinman. That's the yeah, one. the soul of care. That's yeah. He tells a great story about going out to make a house call because this patient was being called noncompliant. She wasn't doing any of the stuff that they wanted. She wasn't adhering to a diet. Turns out she was a widow, lived on the third floor of a building, couldn't get downstairs. Some kid would shop for her at the store, leave the stuff at the landing on the first floor. By the time she finally got down there, she may or may not have it anymore. And she was blocks from a bus to get to the hospital. And the doctors at the hospital thought she wasn't taking care of herself. It was her fault. And once Kleiman visited her and saw how her social situation was and all the things she needed, that, that's when the tide turned. And you're exactly right. The non-compliant patient became the patient with all of these places, these barriers to, to care, all of the things that we talk about that get in the way of thriving. So it's like we call a patient, a not a poor historian. When they don't, when their story is hard to tell, but the problem is the person, the historian is the one who is taking the history, not the one who's providing it. So the poor historian is actually the one sitting in the doctor's chair, not the one sitting in the patient's chair. And I think that's another piece of the puzzle we like to we need to talk about too. And
0: I bet that just rubbed off, and how you cared for patients as you worked with medical students and interns and residents. That I bet you there were things that probably shame in some way them. Because you discovered by asking questions and listening some information that was so vital, yeah. and of course, they you didn't intentionally shame, but the resident maybe or the intern maybe head down, oh wow, how did you figure that out?" And I was supposed to have an hour with them, and you were able to. Help get some insights, but then, of course, they were able to carry that hopefully forward and learn those important truths. It was truths.
1: always fun to run across some little fact about the patient that, that opened things up. I, and one of the stories I wrote about in the book was a patient that came in with his daughter's early dementia, very disengaged in the conversation, not knowing how to take care of him. Turns out, after talking to him, that he had been a state horseshoe champion in his 20s. He's in his 70s or early 80s now. And I got him talking about horseshoes, and suddenly he lit up, he was animated, he got out of the chair to show me how you hold a horseshoe when you're in competition, and how many ringers he would had in a row and things like that. And suddenly, just this one little fact that we were able to almost accidentally tease out of the situation allowed us to engage in a conversation that I never would have had otherwise. And his daughters, they'd heard most of the stuff, I'm sure, a hundred times, but you don't think that you're going to go to a cancer surgeon's office and talk about horseshoes but it, to me, that was the secret sauce that made that conversation worthwhile and allowed us to develop a relationship and a trust that allowed us to move on to the next place. So, and yeah. I learned a lot about horseshoes. So that was good, too.
0: And now you still remember that story, quite vividly. <laughs> of course, it's in the book. But you go, I never knew much about horseshoes. and And yep. as a doctor, I get a chance to learn over the years about a lot of things that I've never done myself, probably will never do in my life. But actually, it's interesting, and every day, it's like I honestly say I almost always learn something new that is just very interesting, getting into little facts like how to hold a horseshoe and the right way to do things in the world of things and get a chance. And I, I think it's great to hear people's stories, as, and I think getting a chance to read your book would be, I think, very welcome. When I have patients who share their stories and I get a chance to share their stories on the podcast. I think it's nice to hear that other people are going through it. In the book I wrote, I blend information along with narratives, brief Mm -hmm. narratives of people. And I've had patients get back to me in feedback and say, I just cried the first four chapters because you were somebody who obviously validates that this is a real thing you're sharing this story is not oh look at this person they believe in ghosts they just are hypochondriac and look at all these made up wild stories of their deluded brain but no this is somebody who actually gets it who buys in that this is a real thing and to feel that often for the first time that their story is important. What they're going through is important. And I look back at the stories of what many doctors were writing those narratives down. They didn't have all of these x-rays and tests going back to the 1800s and early 1900s. But what they did is they really believed the patients, they had theories that mm-hmm. quite honestly were insightful and very close to it, but we didn't have the modern technology of things like the functional MRI to show that the brain processes pain in the spinal cord and these are actually real. They called it neurasthenia, which meant nerve exhaustion. And they knew there's something, but of course, their understanding on a, how they described it was exactly how people are experiencing now. But they never made a diagnosis of that because after the 1920s, When we started wanting to get real, organic illnesses, it sort of fell out of favor. And yet, 100 years later, now we're having a greater understanding. But when you look back at those stories, they are the same kind of stories I'm hearing now from patients. And it's so interesting.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And it goes so fast. I calculated this a bit ago. I haven't done it for a bit. But the doctors who graduated from medical school in the mid-1930s, were as far older than I am as I am than the students graduating now. That to me is it's simple math. But on the other hand, I don't honestly know if I met a doctor who graduated in the 1930s. I probably did, but they would have seemed like a billion years old when I was in training. And there they are. So how much has happened? The doctors who graduated in the 30s didn't even have antibiotics. It didn't the first antibiotics came into use in the late 30s? And look what we've got now. And just imagine what the next generation. I just can't even begin to think what the next generation of physicians will have as tools as long as they learn how to use them correctly. And I think this narrative thread that Kleinman talked about, he graduated in the 60s, and Thomas and Osler, and just it goes way back. And that's, I think, maybe one of the threads it will carry through, hopefully, between the doctors of old and the doctors way far in the future.
0: And I think it's important for illness is that are most benefited by that holistic biopsychosocial model that there isn't one medical quick solution. Mm. I think in medicine, we love that that solution that can fix somebody and be done with it. I think that in primary care, a lot of people may switch from primary care and just be urgent care doctors. There's one problem, you're here for that. Do I have strep throat? Don't I? Do you have a urinary tract infection? but these more chronic problems, but at the same time, where do they go? They're often left in no man's land and that narrative
1: medicine. That's why important. I went into surgery. I wanted things to go fast.
0: <laughs> Oh, And I recognize that. I, I think that those are things like there's this other part, but that's why I thought it was fascinating that you had an interest in this because I think people selectively realize like, oh, that other stuff is. Yeah.
1: It's learning to tolerate ambiguity. I guess that's one of the things that I learned a long time mm-hmm. ago was that. And the students who don't tolerate ambiguity well tend to end up in surgical fields as opposed to students who are good at ambiguity tend to end up in psychiatry or primary care. And I think there's obviously some overlap, but it's...
0: And I think no matter where you're at, recognizing the importance as you get to, you did that with your residents and sharing that narrative and you continued to have that interest. Any, as we get towards the end of the interview here, any last thoughts or stories that you'd like to share?
1: When dealing with patients, I have not had the privilege of working with people with chronic illness, strictly working with their chronic illness. But the reason I liked ENT was you do do quick fixes. You see a kid with the ear problems, you put in tubes and they're fine. They take out their tonsils, they're fine. But actually my interest going into training was I liked long-term care. I like taking care of the same group of patients over a long period of time. That's why I went into the cancer aspect of ENT. And there were patients that I Saw as a resident, there's one guy I saw as a resident back in the early, mid 80s that I continued to see even as I was getting close to retirement. He had a series of cancers. It was just one of the probably, and certainly not lifestyle. He took good care of himself, but just had at least three cancers that I cared for over the years. And that to me was really a fascinating experience and a very rewarding experience. And so I guess when I'm talking to medical students, I try to talk about patients like that, because I think, again, it's hearing that story and understanding the long-term, to me, was the interesting part. To them, it's sometimes, at least off the top of their head, they're going to say, that would be hard because every time you see them, something terrible is going on, and you've got another problem to fix. And to me, it's not fixing a problem. You're helping a friend. That is the beauty of the narrative piece, is to flip that switch. I'm cautious with the the boundaries that we need to establish with patients and uh, and physicians. I know they're really not my friends, but on the other hand, I do care about them. And I do care about the many of the patients I cared for a long time and their families. And to me, it's, that was one of the big privileges of what I got to do was to be part of people's lives, really at some of those critical junctures that they experience, where they're getting a cancer diagnosis, or they're making decisions about cancer treatment, or they're recovering from a big cancer procedure. And that was my privilege I was given in choosing the uh, the route that I chose to go into medicine. And the fact that I hear their stories and then got the opportunity with their permission to tell some of the stories was just a bonus for me. So I guess that would be the bottom line is that it's really about the story. It always has been. And if we can get people in medicine to appreciate that again, I think everyone will benefit.
0: One last... A thought. One of the in the title of your book, you use the word grace. And what are the sources of your inspiration for having compassion, for caring for
1: others? Oh, good question. I, That comes really specifically from a a friend of mine who was a pastor who, very early in my career, was talking about the difference between curing someone and healing someone. And it's not something I'd really thought about much before, but I think that was the point. Maybe that flipped a switch for me to realize that I've had patients that I've been able to cure, but they really weren't healed. And I've had other patients that I healed, but they weren't cured. And I think that being allowed to be in those spaces is a moment of grace in my life, is to, when people allow me without the experience of long-term relationships to be at that level of Intimacy is a moment of grace, and that's, I think, one of the things that I've enjoyed most and been in awe of and been most inspired by in caring for patients over the years.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom over the years and also for all the help and continued help with helping teach the next generation of doctors and also for the listeners out there who are struggling to get a chance to consider Writing out their narrative. I think it's therapeutic. Hopefully, your doctor will be receptive. I do think that many doctors, if you have a chance to look through this and maybe talk about it in the future at a next visit or ahead of time, if they can take a look at it, not many doctors do that. And that actually likely is going to potentially make that doctor's day or week as it helps reduce their burnout and to understand them better. And also, it's going to help you potentially improve your chance of healing as you share that story, and hopefully that'll be well received. There's an upcoming narrative medicine workshop that Dr. Bruce Campbell shared for those who are in the Wisconsin area, and then he went on to talk about other ways that physicians who are listening can help learn more about storytelling and get an opportunity to be connected to the
1: human side of men. And give them a prompt and time to write. And then they're welcome to read. They don't have to read, but if they're welcome to read or talk about the process afterwards. And I think that's um the idea last time was that they were Wisconsin chapter was sponsoring a essay contest.
0: Yeah, they're so doing this again. For, yeah.
1: Okay. That was what this was for was to try and spike the punch bowl and help people start the process of writing. And it's exactly like I was talking about with the patients. If you try and write if you give a blank piece of paper, it's impossible. But if you have a prompt and a limited amount of time, you can, it's amazing what you can get down on paper. And that's the whole the whole goal. Man. And there's more and more places where doctors can tell stories. There's a podcast called The Nocturnist, which is a uh, UC San Francisco. They have a lot of, a lot of physician stories. There's an exam and life conference at the University of Iowa every October. People come and tell their stories they bring do workshops on storytelling and other things related to medicine and health. It's both patients and caregivers that interface there. And we're doing a med moth like a you know what the moth is? It's a storytelling he's got ex fabula. It's a storytelling experience where people can get up and talk for five minutes on various topics. And so we have this the storytelling event we're doing with the students and faculty in two weeks. So we do it twice a year at MCW. So yeah we didn't do this kind of stuff when I was in medical school. So it's just been a lot of fun <laughs> to watch it happen because it's it's a new world. So it's good. Very good. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. What can you
0: take from this podcast? I'd really appreciate if you're a patient of mine to actually write down your story. I really have found it so valuable for me as a clinician, for my patients as well, writing down your story going back to infancy. Reach out to Your parents, your older siblings, your aunts and uncles, even grandparents, and get their take and view of what your early life was like and then how that journey went throughout your life. Often, fibromyalgia and related problems start early, and seeing how this whole plot and connection fit together, it offers great insights and is often very revealing. There is a favorite movie of mine called The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis where he plays a ghost of he's a former husband of his wife and throughout the movie he's interacting with all of the different characters that were in his life. And you think that he is Alive until a boy who says to him, I see dead people. And of course, then when you look back in the movie, you start to connect all of the dots and all of the clues that were there, but we didn't take it as he really was a ghost, so to speak. So I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Bruce Campbell. If you Have any questions or comments, please email me at drmichaellenz at gmail.com. If you have any questions that you would like to have on the air, please send me that in an audio format. I'd like to share that with others. It's likely if you have the same question, many others also have that same question as well. And if you enjoyed the podcast please hit the like or follow button. Also, leave a five-star rating and review. That way, more people can help learn about how to live better with fibromyalgia, help remove the stigma for yourself and for your loved ones and for the medical community. Fibromyalgia is one of the most stigmatized problems that I take care of. Until next week, go Team Fibro!